The reviews are in. Good is an understatement. I was very impressed. Very good energy. A breath of fresh air. Oh, wait. Those are the reviews for Galen Rupp's performance as an announcer. Not a shoe. But I'm sure there's shoe reviews like that on our Better Running Shoe site. If you want to see the best shoe reviews on the planet, check it out. Let's run.com slash shoes. We've now got a schedule. Every two months, we're going to push people for more reviews. We're doing that again starting this week. Review of shoe if you haven't. Check it all out. The best shoe reviews. Great place to buy shoes. Let's run.com slash shoes. And it's getting dark early. You don't want to be depressed all winter. You know what you need? A little pick-me-up I need sometimes. Element. It's electrolytes without the junk. You can now get grapefruit salt. I hate grapefruit in general, but this is the best flavor ever. It's now available year-round. They want people to feel summertime year-round. It's got a money-back guarantee. So order big. If you don't like it, you get your money back. Go to letsrun.com slash drink. Link in the show notes. Electrolytes without the junk. Welcome everyone to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. What an episode we've got for you today. The course record went down on Sunday at the New York City Marathon, but not the one we expected, as Tamarat Tola ran 204.58 to break Jeffrey Mutai's 205.06 record from 2011. The women's race came down to the final mile as Helen O'Beary gained revenge on Latessa Bagide took the win in 227-23 thanks to a 4.52 final mile. We're going to break down that race from all angles, including the broadcast, which featured impressive Galen Rupp on the lead moto. We also saw the runners in the US 5K championships almost run over by a bus. Elise Cranny is the latest US champion to walk away from the Bauman Track Club in their prime. And world record holder... Kelvin Kipton will be running the Rotterdam Marathon in April. We'll give our thoughts on that. Plus, 2022 World Steeple Champion Nora Gerudo has had her athlete biological passport suspension overturned. What does that mean? What does it mean for the sport? This is Jonathan Gold. I am joined by Robert and Weldon Johnson, my co-hosts, the co-founders of Let's Run.com. And first item on the menu, it is a heaping pile of humble pie. Weldon, on last week's show, we were talking about New York City and Mr. Robert Johnson, who likes to make predictions, likes to make some guarantees, threw the following one out there. Here's your Rojo guarantee. The women's course record will fall. I, how in the hell is the course record 222-31 from 2003? I'm looking at the results here. It says Helen O'Beary ran 227.23, which is nearly five minutes slower. Robert, care to respond? Well, you guys must be desperate. Making it all about me? My response would be, how in the hell do those women run so slow on such a beautiful day to run fast? Can we get some clawback? Like a lot of times race results weekly comes out and you look at the minor tier races and it'll say like, 
50, there'll be an asterisk next to the result. It'll say 50% reduction for not breaking such and such time. Can we bring that back to New York? Ladies' race disappointed me. Men's race was mesmerizing. I've got, if, if we're going to pick b- b- bones with each other, I mean, admittedly, I was enjoying my Sunday. Well, that's not true. I was watching the race and helping y'all with the live coverage, but didn't do much in the recap. But the women's recap gets published, and y'all wrote the following about the women's race. One of the appeals of New York City is that without pacers, anything can happen, but for two hours, very little did. On the other hand, the final models were incredibly dramatic. We wound up with defending champion Lucchetti duking out against two of the greatest runners of their generation in Gooday and Oberi. Marathon finishes don't get much more exciting. I got to disagree, man. Even the final mile to me was a snooze fest. Thumbs down to the women's race. But how about Tamara Tola? That was mesmerizing. It's just a shame we didn't have a broadcast that could appreciate it. But I'm pretty excited because there's a lot of haters of Rojo on the message board. And they say he can't even speak English. He can't even type. That must mean I'm one step closer to being the lead announcer on the New York City broadcast. I can't believe you guys didn't bring it up in the intro, Jonathan Galt. In case you're not American, a huge percentage of your audience is not American. The New York Roadrunners hired a man who struggles to speak English to be their lead announcer for the race. And the broadcast was about as bad as you would have expected. Well, I didn't bring it up in the lead because I felt there were a few more important storylines to discuss, including the course record and a G'day versus Obiri duel. We'll get to the Juan, Juan Luis Barrio fiasco in a little bit because I do think there's some fair criticism to be had. I do feel bad for him. I think he was set up to fail. He shouldn't have been on TV to begin with. But look, let's talk about these races. You're complaining. I mean, this is ridiculous, people. I'm getting texts from Robert after the race to like, do we put an asterisk next to Obiri's win? Like, they should really only give her half a trophy. Like, this doesn't count as a real victory. And pardon me, Robin, let's be real. You're just complaining because your prediction didn't come true. How can you not find this exciting? Central Park, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, what's more exciting to you? Seeing a Tigi Sefa or Sivan Hassan just running on their own, essentially, in the second half of a race, though they're going after really fast times. To me, those races were great in their own way, but there was no drama at all over the second half because it was clear that Asefa was going to break... Well, I guess the drama was could Asefa break the world, the marathon world record, but in terms of the win, there was no drama at all. I was finally happy to see a full marathon where the outcome was in doubt in the final stages because we haven't really seen that in the men's or women's races until this weekend. Are you just sore about your prediction not coming true and that's why you're overlooking this dramatic finish in Central Park? I didn't appreciate it because I didn't know how fast they were running. I wasn't getting mile ball mouse splits. Oh, they finally picked it up in mile 23. That's a 530. And it's a 5.15. There was no excitement on the broadcast. The pace is ratcheting down. We've got the World Cross Country champion versus the woman that should have won World Cross Country. Two of the greatest of all time on the track, battling it out. Do we have that passion? Do we have that energy on the broadcast? No, we didn't. I didn't even know what the hell they were. And then we get to the final mile. The only time we knew it was the final miles because they had a goddamn sponsor for it. And they said the Volvo final mile is coming up. And it was already like a minute and a half into it. You think they would have basic things like a marking on the on the street, like 
Three quarters of a mile to go. Half mile to go. 400 to go. Oh, the first half is in 230. They might break five here. No, we didn't get any of that. They eventually take the screen off. We have no idea how fast it was. When, it, when I realized during the last mile, I thought to myself, oh my God, how fast could they run? And I thought, could it be in the 430s? When I saw 452, it didn't impress me. Now, that was a mental mistake. This is why if I ever get on a goddamn broadcast, I'm going to have John Kellogg. Well, he doesn't like to wake up in the morning. Though. That might be a problem, but an expert. Because I asked John Kellogg after this race was over, let's run coaching guru John Kellogg. He, he didn't bother to watch this race, men or women. I told him exactly what the pace was for halfway, 74 minutes. I told him they're over 230 pace at uh, 30K. I told him what they ran between 30 and – no, but at 35K, they're over 230 pace. I tell him what they run between 35 and 40K, and I say, how fast would they close? Pretty much nails it. He's like, 448? So it was 452. I mean, the final mile is also uphill in New York through Central Park. Robert, you might know that if you got out there and tried to break three hours. But John, what, what, what was mesmerizing about the last mile? There was there was no ch- lead changes. It's like a I didn't really know how far away they were. Yeah, but you've got you've got the defending champion in Sharon Lacady. You've got Latessenbeck Gide, who is a world record holder in the ten thousand the half marathon. You've got Helen O'Beary, who won the Boston Marathon this year. They're all right next to each other. There's a mile to go. We don't know when one of them is going to take off. It's like the final lap of a 1500. I thought this was very exciting. And the, it kind of boggles my mind that you need an announcer to tell you to get excited about this sort of stuff. I'm here to talk about the race. My primary objective is not just to complain about the marathon broadcast, which we do with basically every marathon every time. It's kind of sickening to me, actually, that all you want to do is complain about it instead of appreciate the great racing. Am I off base here, Weldon? Agree with you 100%, John. It is sort of sickening. If you don't get excited about three people going head-to-head over the final quarter mile of a marathon, when are you ever going to get excited about a marathon? Okay, sure, it's better if the lead switches back and forth, but this one one was in doubt to the final quarter mile. The final 200 was a little anti-climatic which was a bit surprising. I thought G'day might put up more of a fight. But with Katie, when they were battling on Central Park South there, I was like, wow, she looks good. We, You and I were debating, like, who's, who's going to take this? Who looks good? They had a nice sort of shot right next to the runners for that part. I enjoyed it. Way more interesting than the final five miles of the men's race. Biggest winning margin of victory since 2000 on the men's side. There was no drama there. The drama there, you should be playing up, oh, is he going to get the course record and talk about that a bit? Because, but great victory for Helen O'Beary. Her second great victory in a row. On picked a winner with her, I'll say that much. I'll be upbeat now, guys. She's amazing. And, you know, a year ago, it was debatable what she was going to do as a marathoner. Now it looks like she's going to be a great one. Having won two majors. Now back to the pacing, what I was saying was, if you explain that final mile, like John Kellogg's like, think about a male. Like, how close to, do you think they could come within? He's like, no matter that, he's like, the fact that they're not running quote unquote fast, they're still running 25 miles on their legs. And, you know, it's like 545 pace. It's not like they're running eight minute pace. So you're going to have the pounding on the legs. He's like, if you think about a guy, how fast could a guy run a mile all out within their like what they could run in a race? 
He's like, it'd be hard. You'd be hard pressed to come within 30 seconds of it. Like, although I, he's like 425, but I like, didn't kept him. What did they actually, what did we have for the fastest mile from Kipton, John? Well, they reported it as 418, but I think it's probably more like his fastest mile was in the mid 420s, mid to high 420s, I guess. Which is kind of what he said. He said 425 at 30 seconds to what they run, run flat. But well, I don't think Kipton's a 355 miler. <laughs> You don't think he could do that if he trained for it? Well, if he could train for it, maybe. If if Lex Young can run three fifty six or Leo Young, neither of Kelvin them can. can. Well, didn't they run three fifty seven? Excuse me. No. So, Obiri is amazing. Am I allowed to say anything somewhat negative? Walden always gets mad and says I'm a Debbie Downer, but I mean, I guess she's super young. How old is Ladison that good day? He's 25. And I guess there could only be one winner. And But I'm starting, like, when this race ended, I'm like, oh, maybe Gaudet is just, like, she, she never wins anything. I know she won Worlds last year. But this is a woman that's a world record holder in the 5 and the 10. And what was the stat? Like, how many 5,000s had she won? It was, like, one out of, like, 15 5,000s. Well, no, this is the interesting debate about Gaudet. Because look at her season, 2023. She runs 14.07 and 14.08 on the track, two of the fastest times ever. But her three biggest races, she comes up just short. She was winning World Cross with about 100 meters to go, ends up falling, getting, gets blown by, by Beatrice Chabat, and ultimately DQ'd from that race. She finishes second to Gudolf Sagai in the World Championship in the 10,000 meters. She was third for a while, but then she picked up Hassan when Hassan fell down. And now she's second in New York. And then, you know, you go back further. 2019, she got her doors blown off by Safan Hassan at the end of the 10K at Worlds. 2021 Olympics, Hassan and Calcadon Gezahegne, who has gone back to hiding under whatever rock she was at under before the Olympics. Those two both dusted her at the end of the race. But last year, she did outkick Obiri at the World Championship 10K which was great. You know, there was a little contact there. I think Obiri was a little disappointed. Wasn't sure if there should have been a foul there. Obiri gets revenge. It was cool to see them kicking against each other. They both said they enjoyed racing each other, so I appreciated the sportsmanship there. But I saw the argument on the message board because you can go either way. Is it saying, oh, today she's destined to finish second in these races because she can't kick, and now it's even happening in the marathon. She's getting beaten because she can't kick. Or does she have the misfortune of, Going up again. Look at the women who are out kicking her in Paris in June when she finishes second in the Diamond League and runs 14.07. Well, she got out kicked by Faith Kip Yegon, who set a world record in that race. 10,000 meters. She got out kicked by Gudolf Sagai, who was the world record holder at 5,000 meters. In this race, she got out kicked by Helen O'Beary, a two time world champion on the track in the 5,000 meters. Back before then, she was getting out kicked by Safan Hassan one of the all-time greats like is it just she she's really really good but she i think it's more she's really really good she can kick sometimes we saw her wells last year but she happens to be overlapping against some of the greatest we've ever seen i think you i think that's it i mean at first i was like oh man she can't win but then it's like what is a winner if i mean yuki kawaiichi won boston desilin in boston if other people have an off day you win so she's just losing to all-time greats Admittedly, repeatedly, but she can't outkip Kip Yegon, Hassan. 
Obiri? I mean, if you put Kip Yegon and Hassan in the same race, Hassan can't out-Kip Kip Yegon. I mean, it's kind of – that's the thing that I don't like about professional sports is it's like a zero-sum activity. Well, that's the, the whole, that's the best thing about it. There can only be one winner. That's why it was so dramatic at the end. What, you want them both to win? I guess the interesting thing is one. Oh, oh, oh I almost started the show with that. What? Can we retape the intro? And we just start over. That was going to be the road. I forgot. I had this idea in my, when I was sleeping last night. We almost had the greatest, feel-goodest story of all time history. These women did it. For 35 kilometers. There's 14 women at the start. I think 11 of them are still together at 35K. Ladies, just keep it going. Just keep jogging. You go 7.2 kilometers and you're all winners. Also, 11 of you have won the New York City Marathon. Good morning, America. Blogs with all this hatred, this war going on. What a feel-good story that these women after such an amazing run together, the community, the sisterhood, they decided to do what those pole vaulters and those high jumpers did in recent years and win together. I, seriously, what if they had done that? If they would have done that, the message boards would have collapsed. I think you would have had an aneurysm. No, I would have, suppo- then, I would have celebrated won. the but logical... Good Morning America would have had them all on and all like shaking hands. No, these women are too competitive for that to happen. You think Kellen Taylor is just going to be like, oh, yeah. I'm fine. This this is great. We'll cross the finish line together. Hell no. Like, her and Obiri, I mean, they're much too big competitors to ever let it happen. But I would have, it would have been funny just to see how you reacted on the podcast and how the message board would have just exploded. I didn't realize that. This race was so close to having two things I would have loved to have seen. It wasn't close. See- this never would have happened. We were seven kilometers away from, and I wanted to see, because I like to see people intellectually challenged. If this happens, how do you respond? And the other scenario that I was really hoping for, when I looked up on the screen and both the men and the women were in the same mile, I said, please, Lord, can Toa somehow pass these women, all of them, and win this race, even though we started 25 minutes behind. And then I thought, well, maybe that's not a good idea because do you guys know this? I almost started the show with this. It actually... I was like, it was too risky if Tola actually passes the women because the women could have theoretically passed him back. And then we would have had all these gender war people saying, look, see, the women did beat Tola. They outkicked him. Do you, do you realize, this is fascinating, weird, if you think about it. It makes sense logically, but if I told you at the beginning of the race, the lead woman will run faster from 40K to the finish than the lead man. But the lead man will run an all-time fast, the, the course fastest time ever. The New York City Marathon, of course. You go, what? That doesn't make any sense. It actually does make sense. The women were going so slow, they ran a fast final 2K. Tola was going so fast and was so far ahead, he slowed down the final 2K. I think it was like a six-second gap. The women actually ran a little bit faster than Tola. It is pretty crazy, Robert. And I was rooting for him to catch them. I thought it would have been pretty cool. But yeah, that's you. That, that's a pretty wild way of putting it. But that is the scenario that enabled it to happen because he was very aggressive and the women were not aggressive until very late. I also like how Robert casually just throws out, oh, the gender war people, as if he's not actively involved in fighting the gender war on one of the sides. <laughs> like, I don't know. We don't need to talk about all that sort of thing. But I want to get back to this race with like the strategy. 
So G'day, she let it come down to a kick. She kind of trusted her kick. It was good enough to beat everyone else. She was clearly the second best runner in this field, but she got dusted by Obiri over the final 400. And I'm curious, if you're G'day and her team, do you think, hey, I played it right and, you know, on, my, on the day I should have, I just got beat by a superior athlete and I might have gotten beat by good by Obiri no matter what happens? Or do you think, hey, I should have moved with a mile out or I should have gone with 5K out or I should have gone with 10K out? Well, then, do you think tactically G'day made a mistake or is it just Obiri is really, really good and would have been hard to beat in any scenario? In hindsight, it's easy to say she made a mistake, but I don't think she did. What did Dathan Rittenheim tell you after the race, John? He said he was getting nervous at the end. He was questioning his strategy. That strategy was wait until the very end and then try to kick away like she did in Boston. She waited even longer than Obiri. This is Obiri's coach, Dathan Rittenheim. She waited till the final mile and attacked in Boston. And he was saying, you know, when they're running along Central Park South, he's saying, did we choose the wrong thing? She hasn't been doing any sort of speed training or anything like that to prepare for something like this. What's going to happen? And now she ultimately is able to dig deep and pull it off. But yeah, I'm kind of with you, Weldon. I think Obiri is really strong right now. Maybe. I mean, obviously we know what happened when G'day let it come down to the final 400. She got beat. But who's to say that doesn't happen if she moves earlier? So I don't think you can look back and say this is a colossal mistake. She... Yeah, it was going to be hard to beat Obiri no matter what. Yeah, G'day ran 14-0 on the track this year. Obiri was was staying away from the track, so I think she's got to be confident she's going to outkick her or could outkick her. G'day in her debut sort of went out too hard and blew up, so there's probably some doubt there. I think she, I think the thinking might have been sort of like Obiri in her marathon number two. Don't take the lead, just stay behind them and beat them at the end. If you want to criticize her, I would criticize her in the fact that it, it lets Lil Katie stay in the race. If somehow she's going to lose to Lil Katie, okay, that's where I think you're opening it most up to criticism. But like you put Kadei versus Obiri at the end of the marathon, I think Kadei's team probably likes her chances there beforehand. If, if I'm going to criticize her, you're leaving Sharon in the race, but she ended up beating Sharon. So, Well, the one other weird thing about the, the kick at the end of that race was Kadei... They're starting to kick and she's adjusting her uniform and like trying to tuck in her necklace into her singlet. I'm just like, I don't think that cost her the race. She ended up finishing second by six seconds. But I'm just like, there are more important things you should be focused on than adjusting your singlet and making sure it's tucked into your pants or whatever. And I actually, that's my regret. Hand up. I should have asked her about it in the press conference. I didn't. But I did ask her agent, Valentine Trow, like, what was up with these strange uniform adjustments? Why was she doing it late in the race? And he just said it's a little bit of a habit of Latessa at times that she will learn to control the more experience she gets. I'm with Weldon. I mean, in hindsight, you think, of course, G'day should have tried to outkick her. But G'day outkicked her last year on the track, and she's been running track this year. Was Obiri's getting older, so you probably think you got a shot. But, yeah, that whole necklace stuff was weird. Huge thread, super hot for a whole day, and let's run. Good day, wardrobe malfunction. Some people thought she was trying to get a gel out of her pants. Reminded me of like a nervous thing I used to do, OCD type thing in high school. I used to, if I if my left foot would kick my right calf, I'd have to kick back on my left calf over and over. And I used to wear a chain too, and it would bounce sometimes. It would bother me. 
Maybe I guess you're just not tired enough if you're worried about that. A lot of runners have these sort of ticks, though. Paul Chalimo will touch his face during races, even towards the end of it. Edward Cesarek will look over his shoulder all the time. She- uh, Viola Cheptu was touching her face frequently in the final stages of this one. And Emmanuel Correa, he gets that head bob going. I mean, I think most of the times it doesn't really have an impact on what happens in the race. It's just kind of interesting to observe that as the most critical moment of these things is playing out, an athlete is doing one of these strange nervous ticks. Do I come clean here on the air? Wait, are we getting the long-awaited Weldon Johnson doping apology? 20 years later, the truth emerges. I used to touch my male parts. <laughs> I feel like that's a confession that you should be making to your uh, parents or someone who walked in on you. You're saying you touch yourself during races, Weldon? I used to have a problem with my male region. It would get really are hot. You, are you trying to set us up for jokes here? I mean, This is true. It would get really hot. I'm going to become a pioneer in speaking out. It is not comfortable for men. Women are celebrated for talking about their personal issues, their issues that are solely that their sex suffers. And I think other runners have this condition. It's called a varicocele. Your blood flow isn't quite right down there. It can impact fertility. I had a surgery. I went for the Varicocele embrolization. If anybody wants to email me about it, feel free. I can't talk about this issue anymore. Thank you. I mean, is that just a fancy way of saying you would adjust your balls during a race? Because I've, I've seen other runners do that. I'm sure I've done that at some point. Maybe they need to have this surgery, John. I'm glad I'm finally able to speak out after about 25 years. And maybe that's why I wasn't a good runner in college. Once the blood flow just started flowing properly, look out. So... I guess we can talk about the American women if we need to, but women's race it was kind of interesting because we had well originally it was going to be the big four, although the broadcast still claimed they had the big four. Bridget Coast Guy, Letzanet Gade, Perajip Chuchur, and Helen O'Berry. Once Perajip Chuchur did not start with her calf injury, the broadcast just acted like Lucchetti was a big four. But it was interesting to me the night before the race. I was like, I was excited about the women's race. You don't need. So I, I do worry about the thinness of some of these New York fields. I mean, the men's field was half as deep as any other world marathon major in terms of what sub 207, sub 206 guys. You do need a, a, a minimum number of people. But if you have big names and you have three of them, it's generally enough for me. The problem is if one or two of them are off their game, it gets worried. And it just struck me before the race, we still had three big names that actually towed the start line, plus a defending champion. But think about who this race was supposed to also have. It was also supposed to have Y-squared, Yosemite Yoha, who's former half-marathon world record holder, 217-23 marathoner, Lona Salpeter of Israel, 217 marathoner, Gotem Gebrselas, former world champion, 218 marathoner. So we originally were going to have one, two, three, four, five, six women under 219 in the marathon, plus O'Beary, plus Lucchetti. Instead, they ended up having just two women. So I think there was, what, four major withdrawals? I mean, there's not a lot New York can do, but 
it's just kind of interesting to point that out because this field, we were really excited about the day before, and it could have been even twice as deep. Although those names aren't – see, they're not quite as big of a name, so they're nice fillers. Well, I mean, Perez Chicha is a huge loss, the Olympic champion. I think Sam Grotewald did a great job assembling this field. It was good. I mean, it's still pretty awesome, but like you said, it would have been an all-timer had all these women not withdrawn. It was interesting. It struck me on the broadcast when they start the race. There was only 14 women on the start line. I can't remember seeing an elite field for a major marathon that small. And part of it is because the women have a separate start. But I was just looking at it. I'm like, wait, that's that's it? It's just going to be one of these 14 women? And 11 of them were basically all together the whole way? Yeah, the 14 women thing was crazy, John. I mean, you're almost automatically in the top 10. I mean, because... To, to get prize money, you have to start. The rules are you have to start with the leaders. And But I think this is one of those things, right? Let's say you're a 235 marathoner on the women's side. They'd probably let you start with the elites if you want. But I think a lot of those women want to run with the masses in New York. They'd rather start with the first men because they have pacers the whole way. They have people around them. It's a better experience for a lot of them. I, well, I can't speak for them, but it seems to be that way because – there was only 14 women in the professional field of the New York City Marathon, but I thought if Jeb Scherzer started with four superstars, this would have been the greatest New York women's field ever. But yeah, it's crazy that Y squared was supposed to be in, in here too, and Gibra Salas, even Salpatier. Like, wow. I mean, they, were, they, they burned out the guns this year, so it's great, but I don't really care about the fillers and between like 10th and 25th place. but I, I do have a wild stat, though, from Fast Women Newsletter this week. The, do you know who the fastest woman from the mass start was in New York on Sunday? No, we do not. Ivana Iozia of Italy, 241.16, 50 years old. Kind of blew my mind. I was like, I guess... You know, if you were God. 40 years or younger or 45 or younger, you would just start with the elites. But I was like, wow, the f like she beat all the women, she's 50, 241 on New York at 50 years old. I guess you've got men to run with as well. It's a perfect day for running. But I was like, damn, that's impressive. I really think they should start the men first. I've said this before. One of the races finally did it this year. They started the men first because the men are running faster than the women. You're getting a bigger gap between the men and the women. It's better for TV. You do not want the races finishing on top of each other. You know, we'll link to it in the show notes, the article I wrote. Really, one race should finish with other races at halfway. But, and just tell any elite men, any sub-elite men, hey, if, if, if you get near the women, elite women, we're going to tackle you and take you off the course. But let the 10th place women run with men. It's fine with me. Well, yeah, they do some of these weird things nowadays, right? Because the now, contrary to Sebco's tweet, Sebco, the head of World Athletics, had a tweet out saying, I have it right here. Enjoyed a fantastic weekend in New York City for the New York City Marathon. Running is great. It's at the heart of our sport. More people hit the streets for running on a weekly basis than any other sport in the world. The NYR is doing a fantastic job of inspiring the next generation of runners. So far, so good. Well, I don't have any problems with that. The marathon majors are a vital part of our sport and help make athletics even more successful. So far, so good. Here we go. The part Weldon and I both did not like and both noticed. Where else can a recreational participant line up 
next to an Olympic champion. Well, Pratchett-Tucher didn't run, but she was supposed to run. And guess what? If she ran, there would have been 14 other people lined up next to her. The 50,000 people in the back would not have been up lining up next to her. Well, I do wonder, though, maybe he was specifically talking about the marathon. This tweet was accompanied by a picture of Seb Coe, who's a double Olympic champion, running with just some random people in the 5K on Saturday. Do you think it's at all possible he was referring to himself in this tweet? Well, not really known for our grammar here, John, but the sentence before says marathon majors. I think to most people that implies the marathon, but it is a picture of him. It's a good point. And, but Robert's, I don't think he's making clear the other point. The professional men now start like five minutes before the masses for some, uh, for some reason about making things equal because the women start ahead of the, Everybody else, it's, it's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. When the gun, I'm fine if you want to start the women first, but when the gun goes off for the men, everybody goes. That is what it, the sport is about. Humanity, bringing everybody together. That's what they need to do if possible. I agree with you on that one, Weldon. I do wonder, the New York Roadrunners are very protective of their elite fields. I mem- remember a few years ago, we've had athletes in the past start from the mass field and then run up and sort of, be with the leaders or catch the leaders. I think there was even one on the podium a few years ago. New York Roadrunners isn't a huge fan of that. They want their elite races to be the elite races and they don't really want any sort of date crashes coming in. So maybe, I don't know if it's about equality with the women elite starting together as much as them just trying to protect their elite race. A couple other final takeaways on this women's race. Quick hitters. Sharon LaCady, third place. I thought this was a good run. She'd been injured for a bunch of this year. I think she said she didn't really, you know, she didn't have the full buildup she wanted. I know that the slow pace meant she's basically able to hang with them the whole way, but she was the last woman holding on uh, to Le- to Oberian today. She beat Bridget Cosguy, former world record holder. I think this was a very strong second marathon for her. Um, she impressed me. Cosguy fourth. You know, it's kind of hard to say what exactly to make of this. She was only 22 seconds back from the win. But, you know, everyone was together for a long time. Uh, the other thing, Obiri, I think she's on the Olympic team at this point. Athletics Kenya, you know, they are a little capricious with this sort of thing. But winning Boston and New York, they said that basically those are two races. If you want to simulate the Paris course, they're going to come the closest of the majors because there is that monstrous hill in the middle. And both of these are kind of hilly courses. So I think she's on there. Kellen Taylor, eighth place, top American. It's about what I expected. I mean, I look at the people on the start line. She lost to all the people I thought she would lose to, and she beat all the people I thought she would beat. So she ran 229.48. I think that time would have been a few minutes faster had it not been so glacially slow, but she did about what I expected her to do. Molly Huddle, 232.02. Again, her time could have been a little faster, but I expected Kellen Taylor to beat her because she hasn't really, you know, Huddle's older and, hasn't raced a marathon as much recently. I don't know that this really changed how I thought of the American marathoners. Taylor's in a decent spot, but she'll still be an underdog going into the trials. Any other final takeaways on the women? Well, the concerning thing for Huddle is she slowed down from 35K to the finish. They're all in 230, 230 pace at 35K. She runs 232. So. She admitted she didn't train as much as she wanted to for this marathon and, 
she said she's hoping she'll get a full you know bill up for the trials. But I mean, Molly Huddle's a 39 year old. She never made it. She didn't make the. She didn't even finish the last trials when she was much closer to her prime. I just view her as a very long shot going into the trials. America has so many better marathoners who are not coming off pregnancy or injury. I, I think Molly Huddle's days as a super competitive elite American woman are over. Now, some people on the message boards might disagree with me on that. They're like, oh, what about Kira D'Amato, who's same age, I believe? Those are just very different stories. Kira D'Amato was not competitive from essentially like 10 years, from the age of 25 to 35. And she's shown great progress, you know, as she approaches 40. Some people just bodies age differently, whatever. I hope Molly proves me wrong. She 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 had the engine to prove me wrong. I'm not sure it's still there. So, but she's got she only has 90 days or less than 90 now, probably 89, 88 days for the before the Olympic trials to to really change the script. I just don't think she'll be a factor at the trials. No, she had a very long run at the top of U.S. road racing. She I don't think she ever quite delivered the marathon career we thought she could, but. Yeah, there's absolutely no shame in showing down after being so good for so long when you're Molly Huddle and having a great track career to boot. I think the one big regret for her would be uh, that 2015 World Championship 10,000, but we've addressed that before on this podcast. So should we shift gear to the men's race here? That's the one Robert wants to talk about because there was this course record. It goes out fast. I mean, it was, it was a really, really impressive run by Tamarat Tola because this course record of 205.06... We did think it might be vulnerable in the f- upcoming years because of super shoes. But, you know, when Jeffrey Mutai ran this at the time, 20506, that was a pretty fast marathon for any course. To do it in New York in 2011, pre super shoes, was an all time performance. And the fact that it hadn't really seriously, seriously been challenged until Sunday shows you how good that run was. But Tola goes out, he's one of the guys who's being pretty aggressive early on him and Albert Correa, the 2021 champion. And what was seriously impressive to me was Tola goes out fast, 62-45. That's a quick, aggressive halfway split in New York. Most of the guys who went out quick really paid for it. There were 11 men at 63-56 or faster in this race. And there were six at 62-52 or faster. Only three guys broke 210. Many of these guys were slowing down big time. I mean, Jamal Yimmer, who was the last guy with Tola, who was you know close to course record pace at around 19 miles when they were running together, he ended up blowing up big time, fading up to ninth in 211.31. Tola did the opposite of blowing up. He closed his second half faster than his first half. He ran 62.13. So that's a negative split just a really, really tremendous run for a guy who dropped out of the World Championship Marathon less than three months earlier. But when you guys started this show, you were trying to embarrass me with some guarantee I made in the women's race. No one played the clip of, who did I pick to win the race in the men's race? I'm guessing it was Tamarat Tola. I don't remember that strongly, honestly. I remember picking him and Katata. I'm pretty sure I picked him because he got third in London. I knew he was in decent shape. And what else was I talking a lot about on the on the Friday 15 podcast? Yamal Yimmer. Add a lot to your to your 
preview about him because he's, I'm like, John was comparing Yamal Yimmer to this that Moroccan NAIA guy. I'm like, please, Yamal Yimmer is the former Ethiopian half marathon national record holder. He just ran within like five seconds of that. Just got fourth at world half. I know he's run four marathons and he's never done well. He's, I'm surprised he hasn't really run a fast marathon. He seems to be running Boston's and New York's and, and stuff like that, but he's got the talent to do it. And I, I know he was ninth, but like life's not fair. This guy, I, I, I had in my notes to give him some praise. Like he's fourth at, he's, he's with Tola for a long damn time. And then he's fourth at 40 K then he ends up ninth, but I don't care. Like who would I rather have in the race? Yamal Yimmer finishing ninth or Cheswick finishing eighth or the former Syracuse guy finishing seventh. The former Syracuse guy in Cheswick did nothing for me. All right. These guys all have names. Ilias Ayuani, former Let's Run podcast guest. That's the former Syracuse guy who was seventh. Jamal Yimmer is his name. Ninth place. Yeah, no, I, he it was a good, I think you look at that. Okay. He did fade, but he put himself in position to win. He gave himself a chance to win. And Cesarek, I'm not going to fault Cesarek for hanging back because, you know, if he goes out there with Tola and Yimmer and Korea, maybe he just blows up in DNS. Like, he might just say, hey, I'm not running 205 on New York. I get that, but I certainly give Yimmer credit for going for it and taking his shot, even if he came up short. Oh, I think it was foolish for most of the guys to go out in this pace. I was stunned there was that big of a pack. First of all, it was they went out that fast without rabbits. But looking at Yimmer's career marathons, DNF Valencia 2020, I don't know if he was a rabbit or not. Third in Boston, 2021, 210.38, which is actually his PB. DNF Chicago, uh, actually, that's not his PB. Then he, then he was third in Boston, 2021. Eighth in Boston, in 208 in 2022. DNF Chicago, and now this New York race. Where he's he nine. also but, won LA this year in March. It doesn't show up in his World Athletics profile. But the men went out hard. I'm not sure if we got any sense of that on the broadcast. Midlay wasn't listening that closely because I got so frustrated I turned it off for 20 minutes. But I didn't feel like we had a good contrast of like, this is epically fast for the men, epically slow for the women. And then he picks it up. And I, there was sort of this assumption that once he's ahead, he's automatically going to win, which isn't the case. We've seen people blow up before. But at 35K... He was on 203.59 pace. So we've never seen a sub 205 in New York. The record was 205.06. We almost sub, we were debating whether we'd see a sub 204 as well. Faded, got a deal, and obviously in the last 7K or whatever. Well, yeah, you hit the Central Park Hills. That's, it makes sense. You know what I miss, guys, though, about marathoning? I feel like we don't get any anymore. I miss the wall. I blame Super Shoes, man. Like, I used to watch marathons and someone would open up a lead, but you would think, oh, this thing's not over. Like, they may have mistimed it. They might fall apart and someone might run them down. Or you'd see someone go out crazy fast for the first half, like Mary Katani did in New York in 2011. She goes out in 67.56 when that was insanely fast. That was faster than, almost faster than world record pace at the time. And just totally blow blew up. I feel like that doesn't happen these days anymore. And okay, I guess it did happen in New York last year with Daniel Dodnasamento. 
That was dramatic, though. I feel like in most marathons, we don't get this anymore. Kelvin Kipton just goes out these splits we've never seen, or he's running these splits. He, he just picks it up and is stronger over the second half. Teagues to Sefer goes out really fast and just holds on, has no problem. Like, we are seeing it with a lot of athletes who, the ones who try to go with them and then fade, but I don't know. It used to be anyone who tried to do this would pay for it, and someone would come from way back and storm back and cash them or someone would make a move in the few in the final few miles but they'd misjudge it and then they get passed by someone else this sort of stuff would happen in boston and new york and now i just think the very best athletes aren't feeling that same kind of pain or hurt the last 10k of a marathon and i blame the shoes like tamarat tole what did he say before the race last two times he ran new york he's like yeah i started having like leg problems in at 35k i think it was the shoes and i'm just thinking to myself i'm like Dude, that's just called running a marathon. Like once you get to 35K, your body starts to break down and things stop working. And that's just like part of the event. And now I think some of these athletes just expect to feel good the whole way. And some of them do. And I have to think the footwear has changed it. Do you guys feel like the top athletes are hitting the wall less and less these days? Or am I crazy? 100% agree with you. I've debated they need to make the marathon longer. I mean, I don't think you can really do that, but we didn't we didn't have the set distance of 26.2 for a while. So uh, I think there is less drama at some of these races. I feel like as a kid, they'd be like, oh, the Central Park Hills could really, you know, someone might be cleared and like, oh, they still could fall apart on the hills. Now, by and large, once somebody pulls away, that's usually it. As you said last year, Daniel Dos Nascimento completely cratered but that was more of like a suicide mission that was also the heat it was a lot harder i think yeah. we all knew this guy's totally insane we knew he was going to blow up like you used to have other times where there's genuine drama where oh this guy is slowing down a little could he get caught you know that kind of it was almost happening in berlin this year kipchoge was kind of the gap was closing to him but he still ended up winning fairly comfortably yeah generally though now but if you have like let's say we have once you get to about 30K, you got a couple guys together or girls and someone starts pulling away, that okay. person usually goes on to win. And maybe that's yeah. always been the case, but I feel <laughs> like there is a little less drama with the people completely falling apart the last mile of the race or whatnot. So the general point is right, but for New York, it's not right. That's why I was wanted on the broadcast for them to say, I mean, Tola's lead's growing. It's still growing because I didn't think it was in the bag even though he had the largest margin of victory since 2000. Once I realized, okay, he's over a minute ahead, it's over. But last year in the women's race, Lucchetti was not with them when they first broke out. She stayed back and won it. So it's not like it's that long ago that this stuff happens. But in general, yes. But in New York, that's why I like the drama. So I was like, you can come back from, you know, 10, 15 seconds back. You're not going to come, generally going to come back from minutes unless they really misjudge it. But you know, like when Tola's heading into the Bronx and he's not that far ahead, I'm like, he's only 10 seconds ahead here. Maybe I yeah. this race was over. I'm like, it's not over then. No, I guess we, that's a good point with Lachetti last year because, yes, yeah, she did get dropped and came back. That's what that's what made it so exciting. And I think what I'm thinking of is maybe more of these paced races where it used to be you get a pack, like maybe two or three people, or maybe it was one person going out crazy fast and all of them would just die. 
and someone might run them down. It wouldn't ha- always happen, but you know, you had to, and now it's like at least one of them is going to be able to hang on. Probably the lost man standing is going to be fine. And well, I wish we had. That's more why I don't. That. That's why I don't like the pace rabbits races. Every race being a pace race because it's boring. It's just last man standing wins generally. Although Bekele that one time almost came from behind. Well, what do you mean almost? Bekele 2019, one of his finest hours in Berlin. He was gapped and came back to win. I mean, that that's why I'm like, what were these awesome marathons? It's when you have like a lead change or multiple lead changes and not just one definitive surge. Like that's that to me is the most exciting. Uh, either something like 2010, what we saw with Kibede and Wanjiru just both of them throwing in these massive surges and each of them responding in Chicago or a race where you've got multiple people opening gaps in the final miles. I know we can't expect that every single time, but what I like about New York and which is why I think Robin is kind of off base with them saying, Oh, the slow time. It wasn't that fun for me. It's like, I don't know. The se- I like having whoa, 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 whoa. Doubt. 50 minutes into the podcast after leading off criticizing me, you just, Described a finish that I would be all on board for. Multiple back and forth lead changes. We didn't get that in the final miles today. We just had one move. We just didn't know when it was going to come. But there was another race this year. I mean, I guess it was an unrabbited race, but I mean, Yuki Kawauchi at the Marathon Grand Championships went out. Big lead. Exactly. Gets caught. Yes, that's on. awesome. That's what I want. Uh, so I get, it's not dead, but I do feel like it happens less. And maybe I'm just... Yeah, this is kind of going off of vibes in my gut instead of the actual numbers. But I wish we had more of it uh, in marathons. And there was drama in this women's race earlier, like in the park, like Viola Cheptu. Who got second here a couple years ago, Bernard Lagat's sister. She was the one pushing the pace. I mean, a lot of these women were going after it. And But in general, that's why I like New York and Boston. I think the course is still a factor. Maybe there's less drama. Maybe some of it's the training in addition to the shoes. But I feel like the course still somehow plays a role. You get a little more quirkier things. Now, John pointed out in Berlin in 2019 that Bekele came from behind. But on a flat, perfectly pancake course with rabbits, it's even less dramatic. So... And speaking of Boston and New York, post-race, I asked Helen O'Beary, the first woman since Inger Christensen to win New York and Boston in the same year. Friendship Churchill won them back-to-back, but she won New York first in Boston. That was just a couple years ago. But I said, which, which one's tougher? Here's what she said. The Boston and New York course, which is harder? I can say New York is harder than Boston <laughs> because when you enter the Central Park, it's a lot of hills and down it's like Boston is a little bit flat towards the end. So that settles it. John, the New York City Marathon, tougher than the Boston Marathon. Defend your city. Well, I mean, I have I've only run Boston, but I think it's a totally fair opinion to have. I mean, Boston, you have a lot of big downhills at the bottom. It's really the the tough stuff is the hills come at a tough part of the race in Newton. But 
you know, the Hills also come in a tough part of the race in, in, in New York. You've got Central Park and then you've also got those bridges and you're starting on a big uphill. Like, I, I totally can understand if you're saying New York is a tougher course than Boston. I also think Boston, if you get a big tailwind, can be, you can run quite fast, whereas New York, uh, a tailwind's not going to help you. You mean the tailwind is impossible on a loop course? Well, yeah, there is no, yeah, there's no such thing as a tailwind, sure. Was this a shock that Boston, of course, Boston's a harder course, New York's a harder course than Boston. Boston's a net downhill, and you can have a tailwind. Now, you can have more, uh, the weather is the wild card in much more so in Boston than New York. Spring weather is much less predictable, I think, in fall weather. It could be 100 degrees in Boston, or it could be, or it could be 90 degrees in Boston, or it could be 25. It's never going to be 25 for the Boston Marathon. It doesn't get that cold. But can we get some love here? Weldon said, sure. I mean, uh, Viola Chep, too. I mean, you know, she showed, you know, these people don't have good PRs, and they're getting second in New York. What does this mean? But I think we saw in this race, they're better than their PRs. Certainly on the men's side. Albert Career, I was super impressed by him. This is a guy that, you know, he won New York in 2021, got second in another year. He's a 2.8 PB. And, I mean, we'd with the multiple top two performances in New York, I think we realized it's not a fluke. I mean, how do you fluke yourself to that level? But you, you saw it. And these morons in the message board who think your PR is your definitive badge of worthiness as a marathoner. It's not always true because, and we saw it with him. I mean, he's never breaking 208. He goes out in 6245, runs, you know, skips the 207s completely and runs 20. 206.57. So I do like so, either this guy, obviously he can run a little bit faster in a fast course. I just wonder, he's also kind of like Meb. He just runs Boston and New York every time. So Meb, with Meb and him, I wonder like, are they just very fast, flat marathoners who choose to run these other ones? Or are they specifically built for you know this kind of course and they could run these other ones and they might be able to run a minute or two faster but wouldn't be right at the front? I, I don't know, but this guy clearly is built well to run in New York and second place. I mean, so, some could... I guess I'm looking at who he beat. I'd say that this run, based on what he did... Bow is as impressive as when he won in 2021. He ran a lot faster. And the field was pretty, pretty similar because that was a really weak field he beat. He only failed to beat one guy today on Sunday. Well, let's talk about some of these other men's results. No, no. The one result people want to talk about, you're not going to see in the results. That's Canadian Cam Levens. A lot of hype surrounding Cam coming in. He said his goal was to win this thing. And he didn't win. Dropped out, I think, around before 35K. A little before 20K. He, before 20K. Well, I was going to say, let's talk about these results or lack thereof. I mean, stunning to me. Absolutely stunning. When's the last time we saw someone hyped for a mar- Not named Bikili. I don't even know if Bikili's even done this. Hyped before a marathon... In great shape, not injured, and not injured in the race, and they drop out before halfway. Uh, we, maybe we need to confirm I mean, that because I see there's no 20k split for him or halfway, but somehow he has a 25k and 35k split. 
Now maybe they. Well, pick- what are those? Is he on a lead vehicle being dropped out or something? I mean, I don't maybe know. He's he- dr- driving in a car, John. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Pulling the not Rosie too Ruiz, far off. Taking the subway, right? No, he said on Twitter. Quick update from today: not injured or anything. Just felt real crummy from the start, and things didn't improve. We'll take some time to rest and reevaluate training, and then get back and be better. And yeah, usually when someone's dropping out that early, it's because they're injured, they've been nursing an injury, or they developed something during the race. When you're dropping out before halfway or what 30k, well, then it doesn't really make that much of a difference. And nothing, there's no sort of injury. You need to go back and evaluate what happened. Like, did you do too much? Like, obviously, he's knows how to put together strong marathons. His last two marathons before this, he ran big PRs. So was it something on race day? Does he did he have a case of COVID that we don't know about yet? I don't know. Like it's you need to reevaluate what went wrong here though, because it clearly a disaster. Everyone has bad days in the marathon. So maybe you just chalk that up. Like we look at Scott Farble, things are going well and then his body just kind of gave out on him but even that was because he was having like stomach issues cam didn't even mention that so i think you need to kind of do some a post-mortem and figure out what went wrong here john i've done that post-mortem and i'll tell you what happened the men's race went relatively slow nothing crazy the first 10k then they went after it they were in 1430 give or take a few seconds, the next two 5Ks. That's 2.02 marathon pace. Cam Evans himself said before he thinks he's a 2.03 guy. He's not a 2.02 marathoner. I think he got a shock to the system. He can't handle that pace. And then you're no man's land and like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was going to be right up there competitive to the New York City Marathon in the second half, battling it out, going up first half. Whoops. And I'm going to chalk up the same thing to Edward Cheserick, except the other thing with Edward Cheserick was he's essentially running in a non-super shoe. He's running all of these races. He's running 59-minute half marathons in a shoe that he said probably isn't up to snuff with the Nikes. Skechers, please let him run another in another brand on race day. Please, it would do so much for your brand. We need Edward Cheserick being the best he can on race day. And we covered all of this and the Supporters Club podcast. If you want a second podcast every week, join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. And also, we need some good voicemails. Call right now. I think I have a pair of shoes to give away. You want a free pair of running shoes of your choice from a brand. This brand's not paying me anymore, so maybe I won't publicize them. 1-844-LET'S-RUN. 1-844-LET'S-RUN. What a good voicemail. The Cheserac thing, okay, maybe the Super Shoes had an effect, but I also think this just wasn't a race suited for him. The one I was like, this guy can be dangerous if the pace lags and he's still in it when they come back into Manhattan uh, for the final 10K or so. That's not what we had. We had Toller and Kora running very aggressively and... It made sense why Cheserite would hang back, but he was going to be a factor if it was like he could use sort of that speed and at the end of the race. If it was going to be quick, I was like, I don't know if this guy can hang on and run that quick. So he was eighth in 2.11.07. I think it's fine. It's not like, oh, this was a disaster. It wasn't, oh, this is amazing. 
he ran the race. He has experience doing a marathon. I'd like to see what he can do in marathon number two. But all things considered, it was so-so. I got to quibble with Weldon. What, yeah, what can it do for your brand if Cheswick does well in another shoe's brand? It makes people realize your shoe sucks. But anyways. They see Skechers winning the New York City Marathon. It's a big thing right there that says Skechers. That's what the average person says. They then go around and do media with him and say, we have the New York City Marathon champion. We sponsor him. He, he gives speeches. And they said, we have great training okay. shoes. Our, our racing shoes aren't quite up to speed yet, but we have great racing shoes. We have great training shoes. We're a brand for the masses. It's certainly better for them if he than if he didn't win. Like they would, Skechers would take a win in non in non Skechers shoes. That would obviously benefit them overall. Okay. By the way, if you're a Skechers fan, go review a Skechers shoe. The most popular shoe on BetterRunningShoes.com. If Skechers only has three reviews, but this was just a tough situation to be in. If Rupp was in this race, I'm not sure he would have gone with the leaders either. I mean, it's your marathon debut, and they go out in 62.45. Thought he was smart. He went out in 63.30, faded a little bit. Runs What did he run? Two, two, 2.11.07. So take off a minute and a half for the, for the hills. It's a 2.09.30. Take off another minute for the fade. He's a 2.08 marathoner. So that gets me right now. If Edward Cheswick was an American, he would be in the absolute thick. One, probably one of the people I'm predicting to make the Olympic team. If he was American. If he was, and that was one of the things I've been meaning to ask you guys for four days now. Has he given up on that? He was asked about it in the press conference, and he declined to t- answer. He's never enjoyed talking about this. I mean... I don't know. He's been trying to get citizenship since he turned professional in 2017, and we've had no indication that he's any closer to it right now than he was back then. There was a story a few years ago. They said he was just struggling to get his visa and green card renewed. So I wouldn't hold my breath on him getting citizenship, and certainly it's not going to come before the trials in February. We need an investigative reporter to get to the bottom of this. We need a private eye or somebody. There's got to be a story here. Everybody else in, in, in shit. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people come over here every year. This guy's been living here for years, can't get citizenship. Is it because the age was wrong when he applied? Is there something else going on here? I would love to know. If you know the scoop, give us a, a call, 844 Let's Run, 844 538 7786. Email me, Robert at Let's Run.com. You're vastly underestimating how difficult it is to get U.S. citizenship. You'd like, there are. You say millions of people come over. Yeah, millions more come over and never get citizenship or want to get citizenship and can't. This is one of the most highly sought-after citizenships in the whole world. And you're just saying this one guy can't get it. Something must be wrong. I think one is he got started late on the process. He came over the high school in 2010, and they really didn't get the ball rolling until he graduated Oregon in 2017. But I don't know if it's, oh, he must have done something in the past to not get citizenship. I think it's just hard to get U.S. citizenship. Okay, John, let's go through the list of prominent Kenyan runners that came to school in America, were big successes, and didn't get citizenship to try to get it. Well, I'm, I'm sure there are many or, or of look, them. But let's just wait, go through the ones Robert, that Robert, how Betsy long Sina. did it take for Betsy Siner? Betsy Siner finished college in 2013 or 2014. She only... Started competing for the U.S. a year or two ago. I, actually, I want to look up the exact numbers on this and see when she got her citizenship because I think it's probably around this same gap. 
Yeah, well, you're doing that, John. It's very hard to get citizenship if you don't have some special carve-out. And he was over here in high school. I feel like maybe they dropped the ball on some technical process, but also have a new strategy to talk to Cheswick. Sharon Katie is fiance. She's a great interview. Ches is good when we talk about running, but I feel like I was trying to track down Ches after the race. Finally, I just talked to Sharon. She said, oh, I just pretty much exchanged pleasantries with him, ask him how he did, but Okay, I have it. Betsy Siner finished college at Iowa State in 2013. She didn't become a U.S. citizen until 2021. So that's eight years, Robert. Cesarek, eight years, will be 2025. Now, I don't know if Betsy Siner, I don't know how long she was pursuing U.S. citizenship, but Cesarek still has two more years to go until if he's going to wait to get it until as late as Betsy Siner did. But Cesarek came here in high school, John. Yeah, and he didn't start applying for it until 2017. And But the New York Times had articles saying when, John, it was going to happen by. He is way off that timeline. I don't think he has a green card, and I'm looking here. It takes five yards at, five years after you have a green card to get a citizenship. So, Right, there have been holdups in his case. I mean, I think it has taken longer than they thought. But Robert's just acting as if this is like some quick fix. Everyone gets it very quickly. I mean... Sally Kipiego graduated college 20, 2009, didn't become a U.S. citizen until 2017. It's not a quick process for anyone unless you join the military. What year did he graduate college, John? 2017. So it's eventually going to happen. The more I think about it, I was thinking he'd given up on it because we haven't heard about it. But he doesn't want to piss off athletics, Kenya and stuff and admit that he's still trying to get it. So either he or his wife will get it and then they'll be citizens and he'll be on the 2028 Olympic team. Maybe. But- in terms of the performance, yeah, him and Cam Levens, look, if you put them at a Berlin or a London and rabid did race right now, they're not at that level. They're going to get dropped. And in some ways, this was the New York version of that race. The first 10K was whatever, kind of more typical New York. And then they just went after it. It was more like a time trial type thing for New York. Well, that's ball game over for them. So an okay debut for him. Cam Levens will get another shot for sure at the Olympics. Learn from this. But we talked a little bit about the announcing at the beginning. While we're on the subject of Oregon runners. The Oregon runner who had the best day on Sunday. Could it have been the one and only Galen Rupp He was on the lead vehicle for the men's race. And he's getting high praise in Let's Run for his commentating job. Thread right here. Galen is a good analyst. Who would have thought? Poster Scuba Kane, first poster, says, Great insight and affable. Maybe a new career after he retires. That gets 241 upvotes, three downvotes. The stash says, Galen even being passable in a speaking role is a shock. Galen actually being really good in a speaking role is utterly stunning. Good for him and good for us. If the networks are smart enough to use him more, 275 upvotes, five downvotes. 
Great job, Galen. Like we need more good announcers. This, this, this I don't know. It surprised me. I, I, I didn't necessarily think he'd do a, a bad job, but he's not known for his personality interviews and commentating is different, but I thought he might be a little reserved. I figured he'd probably have good analysis, but he combined both great delivery and great knowledge. And that's what you need as an announcer. Nice use of the word boogie as well. Yeah, I was impressed because when they named Galen Rupp, I was like, this is fascinating. I was surprised he'd even sign up to do it, but he did it. I've always said this with Galen. We don't know the real Galen Rupp, us in the media, because he just puts up these walls whenever he's at press conferences. He stays on script. He doesn't like to show any real personality. That's his prerogative. Look, hes I think he's a private guy, but I was like, if he puts up those same walls on the broadcast, we're not going to get anything from him. He didn't. He was great. The one thing that he really added was his experience. Like he's run a lot of marathons, he's run a lot of top races, and he's able to tell you exactly what it's like at these points in the course or what these guys might be thinking. I thought it was terrific, and I think it was a huge mistake that they didn't have more of him and have him in the studio at the finish line because whatever process resulted in Juan Luis Barrios being hired for that role is fundamentally flawed. This is a guy who struggled with his English, who was not making good points, probably because he was speaking in his second language. I don't understand how you could put someone on air like that without at least having tried them out in English and before, but more Galen Rupp on the broadcast more moving forward, I think would be great. This is the broadcast expert here, only one with experience on ESPN3. You guys are right. Rupp was A+. Plus. Now, I'm not sure if it's because expectations are low I don't think that's it. Or that the rest of the broadcast was so bad. But I think I'm going to make a YouTube video where I analyze his broadcasting, what made it good. But first of all, he was not nervous. The first time I ever did a broadcast, I was scared to death. They put him on that moto. He did a great job of like looking at the camera, smiling, showing energy and passion. Most of this broadcast was missing all energy and passion. And then he got right into it. He, he provided analysis instantly, even in questions that weren't asked. He had interesting things to say, and he wanted to get them out, and he got them out. Now, a few times he made a few mistakes. Like he's like, it's like it's a five-man race. There was a five-man lead pack, and the Katata was three seconds back, so it's like a six-man race. That doesn't matter. You can make mistakes, but, but make interesting points. People want to be entertained. They want to be informed, and they want to see passion. He had all three, and he got right into it both times. This is the first clip right when they bring him on. Which, which makes you wonder, why does Galen Rupp, why do you want to stay in this game, Galen, when you can run two flat 35 to get my attention? Uh, Galen's out on the motos. We've got five out there in front. What are you seeing from your vantage point? Good to have you on the, on the, on the broadcast. Hey, John, it's great to be here with you. Um, yeah, it seems like it's certainly a five-man race, but one thing that's really stood out to me is, is Katata has really kept about this five-second gap between for several miles now behind that lead group. And it's got to be a little maddening to see that gap and keep running um, when you're so close to those leaders. But, you know, he closed really hard last year in New York and has a lot of experience here. So definitely can't count him out as the race goes on. So there you have it right there. Like, what did Rub do? He did what I've always said. You don't dumb down the sport. You let the average person treat it like an elite sporting event. The New York Roadrunners should be ashamed of themselves year after year. 
They hired a guy who cannot speak English very well as their lead announcer. It shows you they don't care about having it being, they don't, they're not treating it as a lead sporting event. They're treating it as a DEI contest. It's an absolute joke and they should be ashamed of themselves. But the passion from Rupp, the treating it like an elite sport, like we're the only entity left. I was going to start the podcast. Like we're the only entity left that does elite sport. It's not true. Galen Rupp should do it. Galen, if you want a job at ledgerun.com and you retire, come on board, buddy. <laughs> not going to happen. The guy used to get crucified on our forums. That's why, that's why some people are saying he didn't talk to the media, but. But since Galen's left Alberta, we've seen more of his personality. He did a long podcast with somebody or some TV interview. It's pretty good. I hope it continues because the reality is it doesn't even matter. It's not just marathons. There's a lot of times I hear an announcer for the first time and I'm like, oh, they're great. Remember, everyone loved Tony Romo. Now I'm like, yeah, he sucks. And I, I thought that with a number of, of marathon announcers in recent years. They started out, I don't want to say their names, or oh, they're great. Now I'm like, ah, I'm bored of them already. But So the lesson is you can't win. With Robert Johnson, you can't win. No, it just I think in general. But he won here, without a doubt. And in a universal praise. But why? NYR, I'm sure you're analyzing the debacle. Hopefully the broadcast has finally got them to analyze it. He treats it like an elite sport. He has interesting things to say, and he says them. Well, Juan Luis Barrios treats it as an elite sport, too. He just, just should never been put on the roll. The, the, the hiring process of that needs to be examined. Uh, once I saw him, because he's not a superstar, I knew English wasn't his first language. I just figured, wow, this guy, he's going to be really good because he's got a lot to overcome here. And it was the opposite. So maybe put him on a Spanish broadcast. Like they set him up to fail, as John said earlier. But let's keep this ball rolling. Expectations are key. When I heard he was on the broadcast, we talked about this on the Friday 15. I assumed, wow, they kind of picked out like a no-name guy, you know, two-time, big-time Olympian from Mexico, but not he's not a name. For the broadcast, I go, he must be super polished. He must have stood out in some studio in Latin America or somewhere, and he just blew them away. So I was, I turned on the broadcast, I was expecting, and then when I heard him stutter four words, I literally had to turn it off for 20 minutes because then I realized what, there was only one explanation and it wasn't one that I was happy with. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to NCAA Cross, which the last few years has been one of the best broadcasts in the entire sport of running. And hopefully we can actually talk about the races instead of Robert issuing every single complaint about the New York City Marathon broadcast possible. Okay. I think that's going to do it for our marathon coverage. We do have some other topics of discussion. I mean, I don't know how long we need to dwell on this, but the leaders of the US 5K champs were almost run over by a bus during the race. Like somehow a bus was just doing its regular route in Manhattan. The course wasn't blocked off properly and comes up just short when they're running through about 1K into the race. I don't know if there's that much more to say on it than that, but it kind of obscured Morgan Beetlescombe getting the win, Addie Rodenfels getting the win on the women's side because there was this clip that just went viral of, holy crap, this could have been really, really bad. This thing freaked me out, John, first time I saw it. Because you figure there's no way that five runners could get run over and killed at a NYR event outside of terrorism. Somehow it almost happened here. I mean, nobody got hit. So maybe it's further away than I thought, but it, it scared me. Helping direct a local turkey trot. I realized the, obviously, people keeping people safe on course 
is a priority. But now I'm like, well, every light that's that's a re- really weak point. You got to make sure that nothing is assumed there. I reached out to the NYR. They have issued a statement, John. We're aware of the incident and are in touch with NYPD. They're actively investigating the matter. I guess the only thing you could investigate was if the NYPD dropped the ball or if somehow the bus was on a place where it wasn't supposed to be. Those seem to be the only things that the NYPD could actually investigate, right? Like you're sort of almost saying it wasn't just us, but that's reading between the lines a little bit. We should just wait to see what happens. Right. Whoever was supposed to block off that area of the course clearly failed to do so. And, you know, it's figuring out, okay, where was the miscommunication here? Obviously, no New York Roadrunners, which usually puts on fantastic events, and the PD, neither of them wanted this to happen. There was just a mistake or a miscommunication. You got to figure out how, why it happened and how to fix it moving forward. And it's, it's lucky for everyone that no one was hurt. I'm glad that was no one was hurt. And check the show notes. We put links to this stuff in there. We link the video in the show notes. We got timestamps. Now, speaking of that race, I don't think we really need to take too much time talking about the outcome or anything. It's a road 5K in November. No one's really in shape around this kind of time. But some of the comments afterwards I found were interesting because we talked to Woody Kincaid. And, you know, Kyle Merber and I were kind of joking afterwards. It's like, Kubatia, Elise Cranny, Grant Fisher, all of them have left the Bowman Track Club in the last three weeks. None of them have done any sort of media or any interviews explaining their decision to leave. And so Kyle's like, yeah, I kind of feel bad for Woody because he's like the closest thing we have to someone from Bowman who might be able to speak on this, even though Woody left the team a year ago. Again, similar circumstances. He's still running really well. He won the US 10K title in 2021. He won it again this year working with Mike Smith. And we talked to him and said, you know, what are your thoughts on Elise leaving and Grant leaving? And do you think the fact that Woody left after the 2022 season and had success the year, this year, running the U.S. indoor record at 5,000, winning the U.S. title at 10,000 meters on the track, do you think that showed, you know, it could be done, possible for these guys? Do you think it influenced their decision? He's basically said, this was the quote that Robert put up as the quote a day later, there used to be a thought on Bowerman that this is it. This is the top of the game. And I think now it's not the only ticket in town. Bowman's still really good. They're not going anywhere. But I think there are other teams now that are up there and competitive. And I 100% agree. You've got on Athletics Club, you've got the Mike Smith group, which he refuses to call it a team, but they've got some great athletes down there. Team Boss is doing pretty well. I think Woody nailed it. It's there are more than one way. There's more than one way to the top, and Bauman's not now no longer the clear obvious. Oh, I have to be there if I want to make the, get the most out of my potential. Even though I think Jerry's still a good cro- coach, you can still have success in that with that group. You failed to mention the names of the Brooks Bees who produced a world champion this year, as well as Bobby Kersey. Yes, well-renowned distance coach Bobby Kersey. There was other aspects of his quotes that I thought were just as interesting. He thought that each athlete left probably had a different reason for leaving, but he said that the people that remain are really happy. And he also said, I don't think I would leave right before the Olympics. 
but they still got a good group. People act like it's dead. It's not dead. Got Charles Hicks, Mo Ahmed, Justin Knight if he's healthy. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. You realize what you just did there? You named three foreigners. The, the the focus of people on Let's Run by and large are producing American distance runners. If you want to go overseas for talent, why don't they bring in some Kenyan guys or some Ethiopians if you really want to go A-level? But keep going. Keep naming people who I'm supposed to be really interested on in this team. Call me, what, xenophobic or something? I don't know. Whatever you want to want. Throw some term out there. But what's who am I supposed to be really excited about Bowerman right now with? Keep going. Chris Schweizer, Courtney Frerichs, American record holder, Olympic silver medalist. The most prominent female on the team right now might be the coach, Shalane Flanagan, who ran the New York City Marathon this weekend. Yeah, she was pacing Matt James, one of the bachelor Bachelorette people, I believe. I figured she was there for some sponsorship thing. Looks like she had a MasterCard thing on. Thank you, MasterCard. There you go. You can thank me later for the free publicity. She ran 304.55. And I was like, oh, wow, Shalane Flanagan. I got to ask her some questions. The media person with the NYR said, Shalane, let's run. We'd like to ask some questions. And she declined to speak. So it's hard to get stuff out of the Bowerman Track Club. Yeah, we've put in requests for Grant Fisher, Elise Cranny, uh, Kupathia to talk about these exits and uh, so far, nothing. So we'll see. Uh, that th- that could change. They might be taking their time. Be love love to hear their side of the story. But I want to go back to something Woody said, which was he thinks these athletes all have their own different reasons for leaving. And I think that's partially true, but I do think there are also some common factors for all of them. Look, we can't pretend here that the move to Eugene had nothing to do with this. Since Eugene, they moved to Eugene after the 2022 track season, Cranny... Fisher and Tier in this cycle have all left. Woody Kincaid, Mark Scott, Matthew Sensowitz left the cycle before that after the 2022 season. Mark Scott admitted part of the move, part of the reason for the move, for his move away from the group was because the team moved to Eugene. I under, my understanding is that it was part of Fisher and Cranny's decision making as well. Not just because they're in Eugene, but now, you know, when they were in Portland. They were kind of the priority. They would have all the access to the Nike stuff. And now in Eugene, the priority is on the college kids, the college team. And they can st- they still have access to these facilities, but they're not always the top priority. Obviously, Jerry's attention is split a little bit, but I don't think that is as big a deal as sort of having to move the group and then you know being playing second fiddle a little bit to the re- in terms of the resources available to them. But I do think individually... They all do have their own different reasons. Because if you look at Elise, I think, you know, we saw 2022, she didn't line up for the 10K at USA's. And I think she mentioned this on a podcast. I think it was the Running Effect podcast this week was about um, not feeling like her results matched up to her training necessarily on the world stage and, you know, being worn down sometimes. That could be have something to do with it. I think with Fisher... I'm not sure as much, so I don't really want to speculate what his reason. But then Kupatia, he was very open about Jerry wanting him to do more 5K training and not race as much, and Cooper wanting to race more to 
boost his confidence and train more for the 1500. So yeah, I, I don't think it's all the exact same thing, but I also think the move to Eugene is sort of a commonality with uh, some of these athletes leaving. I was posting on the message board thinking about this. I think it could have been prevented. I feel like finding out after the fact hurt Jerry. I mean, you're training for the Olympics. You want to medal, medal, and then you're, you also have to share time with like some college freshman in the weight room who he gets in the cool tub and you got to get out. But I was thinking how he could have done this. I think that he, I said this before, he wants all the pros down there to elevate Oregon. Recruits see, oh my gosh, these pros are here too. Look how serious they are. The athletes see how serious they are. But then they found out after the fact they're going to be moving. It's, it's, everybody benefits. Oregon benefits. Phil Knight benefits. Jerry benefits. More money. Only people that don't benefit are the pros. So they should have either done the, one of the following two things. They should have told the pros beforehand. They'll let them find out after the fact when they're doing a background check on Jerry. But he could have had a team meeting and have Phil Knight there. Phil says, hey, guys, just want to let you know, there's three things in life I'm really important to me besides my family. Nike, track and field, University of Oregon. I want to see Oregon be great, and I think your coach can do it. But he doesn't want to forsake you guys. So what we're going to do is we're moving the team down to Eugene. He says he can coach both. We're going to give him all the resources that he needs to still coach you guys. But I know it's an imposition. We're going to boost your pay by 15%. You let them feel like, okay, we're, we're they're, they're treating us like humans, not just like things that get dictated to, like adults. That would have been option number one. Option number two would have been to let the team stay in Eugene, excuse me, in Portland. And then you do one workout a week in Portland, one workout at Eugene. Jerry drives up one week workout. They drive down the other. It's kind of a, a mutual thing. But I think the first option would have been the best. I mean, Robert, I feel like the second option would have been better. And I think they could have done this fairly smoothly if they had just had, well, you know, obviously this is hindsight's 2020, but Jerry says, hey, I'm taking the Oregon job, but you guys, you're going to stay in Eugene. The club will be based in Portland through the 2024 Olympics. And we're still going to have Pascal Dobert, who left the team when it moved to Eugene. He was Jerry's longtime right-hand man, assistant coach. Just say, hey, Pascal's going to be in Portland. I'll drive up for workouts once a week. Your day-to-day is going to be fairly the same. We're still going to do altitude camps. The long-term vision is we're going to relocate this team to Eugene after the 2024 Olympics. And if you don't want to do that, you can make plans, different plans, and that's fine. You can go your separate ways. But we're gonna, we don't want things to change for you in these two years leading up to the Olympics, and we'll stay in Portland. Maybe, you know, maybe that wouldn't have worked either. I don't know. But I, I do think – I agree with you, Robert, that I, I think it probably would have been better than just sort of springing this thing on them right before the World Championships last summer. I mean, driving up to Portland sounds easy, but that's five hours you know, there and back. Extra five hours for Jerry every week. I mean, he would be flying in to see workouts at altitude camp. Uh, to me, it's less travel. Well, I guess maybe not less because he's still going to have to fly out to altitude camp as well. But Well, since we have a Bowerman segment now, it seems like every podcast 
There's also the thread Bowerman 35 by 1K. There's no way that workout didn't happen, I don't think. But everything else I know about the sport, I've been pretty much wrong about recently. So, Can I make a quick correction? It's only an hour and 50 from Hayward Field to the Nike headquarters. So it wouldn't be five hours as well to claim to be less than four. Plus, Jerry could make recruiting calls along the way. We haven't even considered the use of the private chopper, of course. I mean, the private chopper was the only sensible way to make this thing work. <laughs> I think we all can agree to that. But post the week right here on Elise Cranny leaving. It was done the, J- the day that Jerry agreed to be the coach of the University of Oregon. There was no way he was going to keep coaching both groups. 191 upvotes, one downvote. Maybe we're complicating it too much. I think he can do both, but as we said, we said many times, for the guys who were there and he was their only thing, it's just such a different relationship. I think you had to have some turnover. Unless maybe, you know, Phil Knight sat him down. They really somehow changed the way this was presented to everybody. But I think it's official. The Jerry Schumacher segment of the week has now replaced the Alberto Salazar segment of the week. Yeah, of course he can make it work. He was coaching post-collegiates when he was at Wisconsin, and Mike Smith is the director at NAU. He coaches a bunch of pros as well successfully. You can be a successful pro and college coach at the same time, but it is a change for a lot of these athletes, and I think it was inevitable. Some people weren't going to enjoy the change or you'd have to adjust to it. It's not. I, I think five years from now, we've said Bowman Track Club could it be totally dead. I could also see it be thriving with some replenished recruits. I wouldn't be shot by either outcome. But for, let's, you know, Colin Gower does this great job on his sports show of comparing sports to life and vice versa. For all the men out there, and it only applies to men, this does not apply to women. It's the great Nathan Taylor, my boss at Cornell, once said. He, I was getting a gift from my wife. Or, he's like, did you wrap it? Did you put a bow on it? It's like, no. He's like, don't give it to her. The wrapping, the presentation is the gift, is what he said. How you present something is critical. If you're a man giving a woman a gift or if you're a coach, making changes. Men don't care. We don't. We don't care. If my wife gives me a gift, as long as it's cool, I don't give a sh- I don't. It could be in a bag of poop, and I'd be happy. <laughs> That's not true. The presentation matters. Yeah, you'd also be mad. Oh, it's covered in poop. Don't lie about that, Robert. You don't want to be sifting through get- poop. That's the problem with Let's Run. We got to wrap ourselves better. Yeah, it may actually it makes sense. The message boards looked like they did in, for so long when Robert's all all about substance over style okay it all makes sense now the new york art runners thank you for trying so hard to bring a new voice to the broadcast this week we loved it I'm sure next time it'll be even okay. better enough you're not allowed to talk about the broadcast i maybe i'm going to institute a ban i don't know if you even have this power but maybe well not co-sign it robert's not allowed to talk about the next marathon broadcast we we discuss i know someone who won't be on the broadcast ever <laughs> yeah, yeah Robert, you can say like oh i wish i could be on these broadcasts you know it's a great way to get on a broadcast is complain about 
all the people who are making the decisions about all these broadcasts on your national podcast. So I, I want it to happen next year. I want Rojo right behind John Anderson, giving him insight, working with the producer, making the sport better. Let's make it happen. And then we also I would gave- love to ha- help. Be, be happy to help out behind the scenes. Just tell them what to be yelling at, looking for the break. And then when the break comes, I, I might run onto the stage, though, if they don't go to the break. Yeah, that would be an issue, I think, for the broadcast as well. Anyway, one other thing I learned from the finish line of this US 5K champs, which Kira D'Amato ran this race, by the way. She finished fourth. I asked her about the marathon start, the Olympic trials marathon start time, which we went into depth about the brouhaha on the Friday 15, so we're not going to rehash that on this week's show. Let's run.com slash subscribe if you want our thoughts there. But I asked her, you know, what are your thoughts about the race being changed? She's like, I just, I don't really even want to think about it. I, don't, I want to kind of remember, remove myself from the drama. So she's like, look, it would be nicer conditions if it was a little earlier, but I'm going to go out there and run. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm keeping track now, a mental list of the athletes who are basically saying, just bring it on. I want a freaking race. I don't care about the conditions. And on that list right now, I have D'Amato, Galen Rupp, Molly Seidel, Des Linden. I feel like I'm trying to think if Scott Farwell has said something similar, but then you've got these other ones like Sarah Hall, Emily Sisson, who are like, hey, I really want to run in the morning. I don't even think Emily Sisson's a bad heat runner, but it is. I'm going to be interested to see the ones who are vocally in favor of moving the start time versus the ones that just say, whatever, bring out, I'll run in whatever conditions. Who does better at this Olympic trials? Uh, I am going to be kind of interested to see that, especially if the noon start stays. Weather running, when it, don't care. The people that suck at hot weather running, when it moved. Wow, imagine that. People are being self-interested. But Emily Sisson, I don't think, sucks at hot weather running. Just She's just better than everybody else. So why, why, why have that wild card in there? Maybe there's someone else that's better at hot weather running than she is. One more thing I wanted to discuss. Kelvin Kiptum, the world record holder in the marathon, has announced his next marathon, or rather is announced for him. It's the Rotterdam Marathon. We talked about this briefly on the Friday 15. Why is he running Rotterdam when he's the defending champion in London and London has the most money of any major? It's a good question. I think part of the reason is his agent, Mark Corstens, is the elite field director at Rotterdam. But a lot of people are talking about this. I mean, these world marathon majors, you bump into people and I bumped into a couple of people over the weekend who I was curious, like, did London even offer money for this guy? Like, I assume they want the defending champion back. Like, the only reason I could imagine he... I like, I'm thinking, are they spooked at all that it could be too good to be true? They don't want someone getting popped and then having their title stripped, even though he's, he's never failed the test. He's never been suspended or anything. And a couple of people mentioned to me, no, he was offered a significant amount of money by London. And I guess my question is, was he made aware of this offer or did his agent, who is also in charge of the Rotterdam field, just sort of say, Hey, let's do Rotterdam. You know, we can make it a world record. It's up to attempt for you. You know, you'll get this nice appearance fee and he doesn't know how much money was left on the table. I'm kind of curious about this whole thing. Define significant, John. I assume he's getting paid pretty well to run Rotterdam. His agent's going to make that work. 
I mean, I heard it could be seven figures. I That's just a rumor, but I heard it could be a huge amount. We need to publish a story. Seven figures. That's a million dollars. That can't be. There's no way that's the appearance money. You have to include the win and the bonus, but. Wait, you think you will. Do you think a seven figure appearance fee has never happened in the marathon? I feel like back in the day, Hailey G might have gotten seven figures somewhere, right? Maybe some prince in Dubai wanted him. But you're going to offer seven figures just to get him? I, I would assume he's the defending champ. He's going to come back. I mean, I'm assuming these guys are getting multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. He, hell, he's a world record holder, maybe $500,000. But a million? We got to make sure he knows about this because. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys are getting carried away. I'm sort of shocked this is hitting the air. John sounds like a little more like Rojo. We have no evidence that he was offered a million. It could be all in. You break the world record. You get everything, blah, blah, blah. This is how, what's the little game where you whisper into the cup and by the time it gets around the circle, Telephone. that seems more likely than me. No, the one, the, I'll just say I, two people I talked to who I trust mentioned he got, he, he was offered an enormous amount of money by London. And I, maybe it is a million, maybe it's not a million, but. No, and one said more than six figures to John. He said, well, he didn't just make this up. So there's no way, right? Rotterdam reached that? No, Rotterdam couldn't offer him that much money. At- so I hope that he was told both. This is my problem with the whole sport. I'm like, how do we know that they, if you're now, if you're a runner, how do you know your age is doing you good? The agents, I don't want to accuse the agent of not doing him good. Maybe he wants an easy, you know, maybe you get guaranteed win in Rotterdam. Well, still, I'd rather go to in London, man. This can work both ways. And, there, and I, I want to be fair to the agent because there's these conflicts exist everywhere. You know, Mark Wetmore, the agent in the U S he puts on all of the Boston meets. He represents a lot of athletes. A lot of his athletes run the meets. Um, you know, Ray Flynn does thing, same thing with the Milrose games. And sometimes it just it works out advantageous for both people. But there is a huge conflict of interest. But it could be that the agent's like, look, I have access to him. We have a, Then the race is like, hey, well, you can get the world record holder. Yeah. And okay, okay well, you're really going to have to pay him. But if you get this amount of money, he'll go. So it could be a win-win. But that type of money, John, I think he's in London. I mean, that's my take. So it's interesting. But yeah, like, when's the last time the world record holder went to Rotterdam? Yeah, especially in his first race after breaking the world record. But maybe, again, if, assuming they told him, maybe you take like three or 400000 to go to Rotterdam, then you go London, we'll pay even more next year. I don't no, know I don't think it's about extracting more money from London next year. I would say if the case for Rotterdam, you could say, hey, forget the rest of this elite field. We're not going to spend money trying to get people to beat you. We're just going to make this as close to a sub two attempt as possible. We're going to hire the money we would have spent on other top athletes. We're going to spend that on two pacemakers. We're going to hire like a 203 guy and he's going to pace you for 32 kilometers or something like that. Like that's what I wonder Rotterdam might be able to offer. Yeah, I don't know any details of the Rotterdam course. I mean, I know it's fast, but I never really analyzed it in the sense of like a Berlin versus course because they've never had the A-plus talent. But who knows? You know, maybe this is a whole breaking two thing. They got sponsors, you know, like, oh, I don't know, Red Bull or somebody's on board. So 
we need to look into this a little bit more. Like, hey, what are the plans for would be, but you, you got to think about a sub two legitimate attempt, right? Like, got it in this year. Like, I went from thinking John was absolutely nuts about the figure he was offered, but if London thought, well, what the hell? We want to see it happen here, a sub two, and we'll, we're going to market it that way. Then it's not quite as crazy because everybody turned into those 159 attempts. Look, when John Galt put this tweet out on November 3rd, saying why London, excuse me, why Rotterdam? Well, his agent, Mark Croshens, is the lead field director in Rotterdam. David Monty, producer of Race Results Weekly, friend of Let's Run, former New York City elite marathon guy, says, London's appearance fee is massively bigger than Rotterdam's. So what's going on here is Kiptum is making a huge bet that under more control conditions, he can break two hours. But that's Monty speculating. This, this random person on Twitter, who I'm assuming is correct, Karsten Hover, says, have you ever run Rotterdam? There's more elevation change and curves than Berlin, Chicago, Valencia. Windy conditions are not unlikely. Not sure what controlled, what's controlled about this, apart from the fact that there will be no competition. So it's kind of interesting. I assume Rotterdam. So if that's true, that it's, well, we had pretty good weather in Chicago this year. Chicago's not always perfect. But I'm assuming no matter what, the Rotterdam's still faster than London. Maybe this guy's still good enough. You can still do it there. But this seems, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm buying a seven figure appearance fee. That's why I, that's why I said it's just sort of a, a rumor. Maybe it's journalistic malpractice to just pass on float a number like that with only one source. You guys can make the call, but right because yeah, what's tied to that, John? I mean, it's like what it used to say: see somebody's workouts, week of workouts in the magazine, and it was like their best Monday, their best Tuesday, their best Wednesday, all combined. So. It's got me more interested in Rotterdam and getting the, to the bottom of this. And also, it could be maybe you get six hundred grand this year, and plus you get a guarantee for five hundred next year if you win. Like, what is seven figures? Is it seven figures for one year, or is it like one of those multiple guarantees? Well, originally, I said no way, but if you somehow throw in, we're going to market this as a sub two attempt, and you get the British public behind it, you get the sponsors behind it. I, I can see a million dollars in value being created. So I went from saying John had turned into Rojo to now saying John's being John, but I'm still shocked that we had, we let us have this debate on the air. I feel like um, I'm wondering if we should have, but I'm also, I know that you guys would have been mad if this ever came out and something like you found out, wait, you guys kept this from me. Like Robert jokes about, Oh, you know, I, should have been fired because I didn't tell him a couple days before Grant Fisher left that I heard a rumor Grant Fisher was going to leave. And so I feel like I had to bring this forward and let you guys know about wasn't just, it was one person with the seven figures, but it was another person saying it was a huge amount. So it's not just, you know, that other person didn't say a specific number, but these are two people I don't think are prone to lying. If you're the London person offering this, why would you tell other people? You might exaggerate because you're anxious, actually angry they didn't go there. Well, you might but, just say, hey, what, like it's obviously going to be asked. Spencer Barden is the head of the elite field of London. 
people will be wondering, hey, Kiptum's doing Rotterdam? He's not coming back to London to run your race as the defending champion? And obviously, like, Spencer was not the person I talked to about this, and he would be one of the two people who would absolutely know this, either Spencer or Mark Horstens, who is Kiptum's agent. But you might want to say, like, hey, we did everything we could to get him, and he wouldn't come. What we got to do is we, give, we make this clip, put it on the internet, then we send it to the London race director and ask him to confirm or deny it. And, or, and, or even legitimate, like, is it possible that he could have made seven figures over at least two years or one year? Like, get some, like, why would he, it makes him look good to know that there's this much money as a possibility out there. But what does this mean for the rest of the spring marathon season? To me, this is bad news, bad news for Boston. I know Weldon thinks Kipchoge is not going to Boston under any circumstance, but I thought if Kipton went to London, I thought Kipchoge is not going to race him there. They're going to wait till the Olympics. Kipchoge might come to Boston. But now I think this means there's a much bigger opening in London. Kipchoge likes that race. He can fill it there. If I was Kipchoge, I might go to Tokyo. It gives you more time to get ready for the Olympics. How are you going to beat Kipton? You need, more, you need to have more training in the bank. Kipton has an abbreviated build-up after London for the Olympics. You get the full five months in, et cetera. Yeah, I think it'll either be Tokyo or London for Kipchoge because I don't think he'll do Boston again and or this spring. And Tokyo and London are both courses he's familiar with and he's won with one on before. I've got to go pick up my son from school. This podcast has gone on. For so long, kind of really pick up today, but probably should have led the podcast with it. Pan Am Games supporters club member Dan Machowski has won a silver medal for our country. Congratulations, Dan Michalski. Look, I don't. This is why I was pleased at the beginning of the show, but it was. I've always struggled to to, to pronounce English proper properly. Machowski Flanagan. Usain, Usain Bolt. Uh, Courtney Fryrex. I'm trying to think of the other ones. It's probably a long, long NYL, In New York Roadrunners, I can butcher the English language too. Please reach out to me for next year's broadcast. All right, people. Remember, it's getting dark early. You don't want to be depressed all winter. You know what you need? A little pick-me-up I need sometimes. Element. It's electrolytes without the junk. You can now get grapefruit salt. I hate grapefruit in general, but this is the best flavor ever. It's now available year-round. They want people to feel summertime year-round. It's got a money-back guarantee. So order big. If you don't like it, you keep you get your money back. Go to letsrun.com slash drink. Link in the show notes. Check it out. Electrolytes without the junk. 